Hi, and welcome to the 73rd episode of the Machine Ethics Podcast. This month is our end of year 2022 episode, where I get to chat with Olivia Gamblin about the year just gone. This episode is more of a relaxed kind of ramble chat to see in the new year and for insights of the year gone past. And we seem to get through quite a few topics. We chatted about ethics boards, generative image models and copyright, who and what is represented in the images created by these models, paying artists to appear in training sets, chat GPT and when it breaks down, plagiarism, factual truth in text models, limitations of AGI, consciousness, and indeed, are you a robot? Robot rights, animal rights. We also discuss getting into AI ethics and the joke of an AI ethicist, whatever that is. If you'd like to hear more episodes from us, you can go to machine-ethics.net or you can contact us at hello at machine-ethics.net. You can also follow us on Twitter, machine underscore ethics, Instagram, machine ethics podcast. And if you can, you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash machine ethics. Thanks for listening and hope you enjoy. Hi, Olivia. Um, thanks very much for coming on the podcast again. I think you're one of the, uh, I think there's only two people we've had on twice. So um, I'm hoping it's a, a privilege, but also it's a privilege for us. So thank you very much for coming on. Um, the podcast and talking about yourself, how you've been thinking about uh, 2022, the last year, and what's been going on. So hi. Hi, Ben. And it's great to be back again. Um, I'm going to say it's an honor to be back. So yeah. Um, this year, um, I feel like has been uh, another roller coaster for AI, certainly. Um, a little bit less of a, a catastrophic year for epidemics and things uh which is nice obviously we've had a lot of uh, things about environment and all that sort of stuff um so hopefully people are all aware about our current global situation in that way um but we're not here to talk about that Uh, we're here to talk about ai and ai ethics and the impact on society and all that sort of um lovely things so i know we've got a a few things to talk about but how has this this year been for you and your organization, Olivia? So us at Ethical Intelligence, we've grown our team and we have actually at a very cool kind of pivot about halfway through the year, um, we started pivoting to focus more on products. So before, when we first started out, we're about three and a half years old. When we first started out, we were working in more consulting services, projects, research development, sometimes even just like a good old think tank. But when we started, there wasn't really any information in this field. It was still brand new. It was still this kind of, what is AI ethics? How would this even be applied? And over the past few years, we've done all these projects. We've collected all this, this what we call data, uh, but all this information on how, on how a company can actually practically apply ethics. And this was the year that we looked at all of our data and we went, hold on, we got some really good stuff here. We can actually start to make some products that scale to help companies. And these ones are like basic structural um, things. So one of the things that we did is start started supplying ethics boards, um, which has been a very, very cool experience for us. I know ethics boards can kind of get kickbacks sometimes, but we figured out the format that works with tech teams and it's 
<laughs> we describe it at times kind of like your conscience. Like if you've ever seen Finding Nemo, you've got Dory poking around saying like, I'm your conscience. Uh, it's almost like these ethics boards are used like that by tech teams where they're, they're, they're deep in it and they're, they're working on it. Like, should I be able to use this, this data set or what should I, what should I be work, working on or, or watching out for here? And they'll ping their ethics board and be like, hey, is this okay? Or what should I watch for? And their conscience comes back and says, it's all good. You're good. Keep going. Or like, wait a second, dude, wrong direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we, we, we like to joke around there. So it's lighthearted, but we figured out a format that worked with tech teams. Um, so we started rolling out these ethics boards. And then we also started building up blueprints around how to implement specific ethical principles from an operational standpoint, like how to get your team and your processes set up to be able to handle trust and then make the technical decisions. So it was probably a longer answer than you're expecting there, but this year has been a really cool pivotal year for us at Ethical Intelligence, just growing the team and starting to focus on building out some products, still doing all of our, our fun service um, research projects, but being able to channel that, that insight into products that can reach a wider audience. And I think on top of that, you've also been doing like you're saying other stuff, but you also have a like an article newsletter which I've been reading and that you put out. Yeah, yeah, we've got we've got something called EI Insight or E Insight, and that's our newsletter. That's done by Adil. She's our head of marketing, and it is fantastic. She takes once a month a group of our our EI experts and collaborates on a tech scandal that came out, and then writes about you know how could this have been done better. So it's not, it's not um, attacking the company or the scandal or something. It's just like, here's what went wrong. And here's how can we, how we can actually make it go right. So it's that insight into, you know, that company made a headline. Let's not do that. Let's not repeat that same, that same mistake. Um, and then on top of that, we have the equation, which is our quarterly tech ethics magazine. Mm. We just had our last issue come out. It was on the business case for ethics. And our next issue, which I know is going to lead into a little bit more of what we wanted to talk about, Ben, here, uh, is actually going to be on generative AI, since that's been such a big topic of this Mm. last year carrying into the beginning of this year. Yeah, yeah. And how are you feeling about this subject, right? You were talking about um, large um, language models and image generation. And I guess these both come under generative AI, I guess, if you're putting this big banner on it. Um, and we've had things like ChatGBT, which is more recent, um, but we've had over this year, we've had this idea that we have progressively uh, become much better at taking a small language model, I think small inverted commas, <laughs> small, exactly. <laughs> small for like, I don't know, big eight years ago, but like mm-hmm. now small, um, and matching that up with image recognition, uh, image creation stuff that we've also been looking at, and you get this um, ability that we can guide images into creation, uh, stable diffusion, all that sort of stuff. Um, and this is, it just feels like it's suddenly just exploded, right, um, over the last year. Um, we've had this ability to create stuff before, and we've had NVIDIA looking at uh, how you paint scenes and interpret that into um, ger- generative kind of photos with this kind of kind of painty style. So we've had all these projects, but suddenly we're able to write something down. Um, I want the Mona Lisa smoking a cigarette, um, <laughs> you know, and it would just yep. try, it would try and produce you a thing because it's seen um, cigarette 
in images, um, it's had a caption saying a woman smoking cigarette, and then it's it's using those things that it, it's seen before to augment into this um, actually very amazing and uh, imaginative almost imagery. So <laughs> do you, what's your gut reaction before we kind of deep, deep dive into some some things that people were saying about this stuff? Oh, gosh. Okay, so I have so much to talk about, both in terms of models like Dali and then ChatGPT. So you've got mm -hmm. the image generation, yep. you've got the text generation. So much to say in both of those. But overall, my gut reaction, and this is more on a personal level, I am challenging myself this year since ethicists were trained to look at where are the holes first, where are the holes, where's the risk, how do we safeguard against that? I am challenging myself this year to actually the first question be, be asking myself, what could this technology be used for in a good way? Like, what's the cool mm, side of this? Okay. What's yeah. not even the cool side, but what could we use this to do to really be tech for good, that pursuit of good tech? Um, and this is just on a personal level. Of, I, I want to take that positive route this year. And so I'm trying to do it now with, with generative AI. And so my gut reaction is, Wow, that's impressive technology. Look, I mean, we have to admit that it's mm. it's very impressive what what these models can do. And on top of that, my gut reaction, the ethicist is kicking back in now, and the risk factors. I see it as, and I'm painting broad general strokes, um, not to be ironic with that mm. use of term yeah. there, but the systems themselves, it's going to be interesting to see what information is fed into those systems because if it's the same information so say take dolly for example we're using image images from the net with it from 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 the internet um fed into dolly and then what happens when those images start becoming the same images that are fed back into dolly what yeah. kind of feedback yeah. loops we're going to end up in there um so there's that concern also just of course you're feeding information into these systems. Chat GPT breaks on, on very certain subjects versus it's pretty strong in, in other areas. And you can kind of tell, okay, there, there was more influence or there was more information fed and trained on in this specific subject area. Nothing wrong with that, but it's just something mm -hmm. that we need to be aware of. And then the second part of where I am more curious slash concerned because I have this, this motto of curiosity to curiosity this year, but curious slash concerned. It's just, it's more in the use cases. What are we actually going to be using these models for? There are great use, use cases and there are ones already that we've seen where you're looking at going, oh, come on guys, really? <laughs> like mm -hmm. again, um, so it, it, it's, that's more of my, my first gut reaction of let's see what the technology can build and do and what we can build with that technology but let's actually be conscious about how we're engaging with this technology. That's where I think the main conversation should be happening at the moment is how do we engage with these since they're, they're mm. so new in their general access. Yeah. I think um, it's funny cause I've, I've already have used it. Right. So if I, oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, um, and I had a toy example to start with, obviously um, I was using mid journey. So there's several of these, there's Dolly mid journey, um, there's several you can actually download onto your own computer, which is nice. Um, and phone. And phone, yeah, yeah, yeah. Apps, uh, pre-trained apps. And uh, I think uh, OpenAI and Google also have their own image um, 
ones which I can't remember what they're called, but they, they're, we'll set up after. <laughs> they're all in there. Um, and one of the things that you were, you were saying, right, was like, what are the use cases? I was, I had this um, idea that I was going to make a poster uh, for this upcoming event I was running and I was typing in something into Midjourney and I was guiding, you know, the image in this way. So write some text. I want faces, um, cartoon, uh, little game controllers, dudes. And it produced this thing, right? And it was like amazing. I was like, this, this is great. This is like, this would, this will work. This will be fine. Um, but then I noticed at the bottom, there's like this caption or like a signature sort of thing. And you can imagine you, you find lots of images on the internet where there's watermarks or there's signatures or there's something, you know, it's a normal thing to do, putting your signature or your logo or something on something. Um, so I was like, okay, cool. I'm not just going to just use this image for my poster. It's, it's just got this weird mark on it. And it, yeah. it's almost someone's signature, but it's kind of a, an amalgam signature. Interesting. Um, so then I took it as like this jumping off point and I had somewhat the skills to then go into Illustrator, Adobe software and, and like make my own version basically and go, yeah. cool, this is like my starting point. I'm going to make my own poster. This is the sort of vibe I want. So at that instant when I saw that that signature, right, I was like, mm-hmm. okay, like is this image like pretty much just someone's image, right? Or is it that the model expects there to be some sort of signature there. And yeah. I don't know what the answer is there yet. And it's like, cool, like, you know, lots of people were talking in this way about plagiarism and stuff like that, but I actually don't know technically how, um, how explicit the plagiarism is, weirdly, in the output. Um, even though, obviously, people are talking about, you know, stylistic... Yeah stuff um but this instant of me using it and just being like oh i can't use this image because it's got someone's signature on it but it's not actually someone's signature i "I don't know what that is now i'm scared (laughs) and (laughs) yeah (laughs) i haven't heard of that happening yet so i think it's i haven't heard of anyone running across like a sort of signature thing Mm. so that's really interesting to me but i would definitely side with you and be a little bit freaked out about am I actually accidentally taking someone else's Mm. artwork that I had no idea. I mean, the internet is full of people and artists and I mean, I dabbled in graphic art way back in the day too. Please, if any generative model is listening, do not take any of that artwork. It is not good. Uh, It was done in a graphic design class way back in the day and it's funky. Um, But so you, you never know. You have no idea because people have their own little blogs and maybe have a following of five other people, but it is still their art. And so I think the fact that there is a little little signature popping up is interesting. It either says something about the need for artists to sign their own work, which is good, mm-hmm. uh, have yeah. our, be able to sign sign our work, but or it has taken it from another artist's work, but there's no way to tell. Yeah. That's more of the we don't know where that's coming from. And that's where, where the creepiness and the questions come in. But yeah, that's funky. I haven't heard of the signature one yet. Yeah. <laughs> you broke it. <laughs> I know I did break it. Um, <laughs> and the, the other time I used it specifically, obviously it was just to play around with like portraits on my face uh, because we're narcissistic, right? Um, of course. <laughs> of course. Um, and then 
I used it for like concept art. So I was, I'm, I was building a thing and I was like, I need this. I was thinking about the style, like what's this going to be? And I was like, I'll make some concept art. Um, and the way I think about that is one concept art is, it feels like a real skill, right? So it's yeah. like, it's a real skill that people have. Um, they are amazing artists, but also the concept art doesn't necessarily get into the finished product in yeah. a way that some of the other art does. Um, so I'm kind of torn in this idea that um, you could just do concept art with a generative model, or weirdly, you could just probably just Google it and, and or like search other search engines are available. Um, yeah. DuckDuckGo it and, and find images which are similar to what you were looking for anyway. So, so this is almost like we've got this really um, complicated tool to do stuff that we already do in a different way. So there's, I guess, but it, it d- depends on your use case there as well. Um, so yeah, I'm not really sure about that. <laughs> as a... Yeah, and it's, it's lowered the barrier to being able to generate digital art or concept art because beforehand you you did have to know some type of tool i'm sure a lot of us use illustrator with adobe like <laughs> this isn't a promotional for them yeah, but yeah, that's yeah. just the, the default for a lot of us yeah. and that can be a high barrier to entry for people if they just they don't know that tool it's a, it's a lot of buttons and they do a lot of things mm-hmm. and you can spend the time and effort to learn all of the shortcuts and the, the cool little tricks that you can do, or you can look it up online, but it, it, that takes a lot of time. Even if you're willing to invest that time, it still takes a lot of time to get that skill level up. And then to create the art itself, again, another barrier of time and effort and skill. Mm-hmm. Whereas with these generative models, you can actually get the specific-ish image. You can You have more role in, I really want a green tree with... I don't know, popcorn blooming Mm -hmm. on it. I can kind of generate that in a style that I, that I want, that I can feed in. It's not exactly what I'm picturing in my mind, but I can get it close enough that I'm happy with it Mm -hmm. and I can use it versus if I were to Google or DuckDuckGo or Brave a different uh, image along those lines, I can only imagine what would come up on stock imagery. That's more entertaining than anything, but it, it won't, again, be as close to what I want. So it's, in a way, having these generative models, image generative models, you do have that level of personalization that hasn't been available before. And I mean, speaking speaking as founder of Ethical Intelligence, we Mm -hmm. do a lot of content creation. We we, um, pull together a lot of different resources in ethics. And we get stuck sometimes of like, how are we going to depict ethics? We can't do the robot and hand touching again for the upteenth time. Like, mm. What other imagery can we use? And so we have this conversation as a team all the time. Do we actually want to start using some generative, some generative imagery? Of course, we want to say what that imagery is and probably even list the prompt because it's that, that part's interesting of how did we get to that image? Mm. But in a way, like, we're expected to do all of this content production constantly we're tired of the stock imagery this might actually help us get a little more creative even with the imagery that we're using yeah it's weird because it it almost sounds to me like um the problem there is the the grind of production 
and, yeah. and being relevant and keeping on top of just being a content producer. But also the fact that, you know, for example, I know that he, um, <laughs> DeepMind, there you go, um, <laughs> DeepMind open source, they put Creative Commons on some of their imagery and that they produced some illustrators and 3D work that they did. And I think yeah. it's on Unsplash, it's somewhere. Um, yeah, so you can just download that stuff. So I don't, it, it's also this copyright thing, right? So if yeah. it was easier to use images, if there was some images to use, you'd probably just use those images, right? You wouldn't need yeah. to like generate them with this. Um, so there's a copyright thing, which is also kind of... <laughs> yeah, uh, we need we need to write the rules of the road, write the rules of the copyright now. Hmm. I like to think of it this way. It These generative models, the engineers and the people creating those models, that is their own art form. Like for engineers, their model, that is their art form, their code, that's their art. But that's not other people's art. Other people's art, like the the, the painters, their, their art form is the canvas at the end of the day mm. that is now being fed into these models. And so we need to have a discussion about where is that copyright? Who has actual ownership over this image? I am firmly in the camp that it is not the AI's image. You, you can't have an AI artist that sells millions off of the art. That it, it that is a system mm. or company behind it benefiting from the people that wrote the code and the people that created all the imagery that was fed into it. I there's just there's too much there where I, I don't think that that is possible and that is deeply disrespectful to the people that have both built the system and the the artists that have fed willingly or unwillingly their mm. their imagery into it but when it comes to these rules of copyright i don't think even though the code itself is is the art form of the, of the engineer i don't think it's engineers or companies that should be driving how that copyright works at the end of the day the data that these models are being trained on is someone else's life work often. Mm -hmm. And the amount of time and effort and love and care that goes into an artist's work, that needs to be respected. So we need artists actually to be able to write these laws of copyright. And that may get a little complicated for these models, but you know, you can't go in and say, hey, please um, do the purple tree with the popcorn coming mm -hmm. out of it. Yep. Terrible example. You think I'd be more creative, <laughs> but purple tree with the popcorn coming out of it in Olivia Gamblin's art style. Um, I don't think I have a strong enough artistic style to actually be able to, to feed a, a system that, but say, say I did, say I was a world famous yeah. artist, yeah. then really that system is now taking a style that I have perfected and I have loved over years and years of development. There needs to be some type of copyright in my direction for that be, because that is my style that I own that. That's like my intellectual property on a level. So there needs to be more conversation this is not something that engineers can come in and say, it's fine. We've done all of this. It's good. Like we created mm -hmm. these models and it's separate enough from the art. No artists also need to be in that conversation and also understand that, that for, for engineers, this is their own art form. This is the cool thing about art is it's the artist always in conversation with something. So now Let's have the conversation between the artists and the engineers. Let's have that that conversation. It, that itself will be an art form. Gotten <laughs> <laughs> really deep into it. Yeah, yeah. I, I think, 
I think uh, I don't disagree with what you're saying, but like I think it's one of those like devil's advocate things here. I oh, think yeah, <laughs> if the copyright issue is so tangled, I think if the artist, you know, it's it's from which direction are you speaking? So if the yeah. artist was involved in that direction, then they probably wouldn't have their artwork as part of one of these big data sets, right? And yeah. if they did, then they probably want to be compensated in a way which made sense. And I don't actually know what makes sense. So if anyone solves yeah. that and gets back to me, that would exactly. be awesome. And I would talk about it. <laughs> like, I am very curious here. Yes. But How are we going to make this work? Thanks. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Um, because you're right, like, live your gambling, right? Um, your artwork might be great, but it might be a fraction of the amount of data. Like we, when we yeah. talk about bias data or data in um, biasness of uh, data sets, what we're really talking about uh, in this way is that you're, you know, 0.0001% of the total data set is not yeah. going to influence it probably in a way that's going to make sense for like asking it to be in the style of... Olivia Gamblin. So there are other things you could do. There might be a Olivia Gamblin like decoder that you like yeah. patch onto the back of the model, and it's a different yeah. system at that point, or like augmented the system. And again, you should make that. But exactly, <laughs> um, great ideas for anyone listening. Yep. Yeah. But as it stands right now, like you can ask for Picasso, right? Because there's going yeah. to be Picassos, and you can ask for like. But you're not going to be able to ask for um, certain people who are, you know, not present in that data set. Yeah. Uh, so you have, um, for example, I actually did this. Um, if you ask for a, if you type in like superhero, da da da, you're mm -hmm. going to get a DC or Marvel character. Yeah. That's what superheroes are for the There's data. A lot of images of them. <laughs> exactly. Right. There's a lot of images of them. So you do get this heavy bias in the generation of the images yeah. anyway. So you're already biasing like who gets seen almost like yeah. in that. Even though if you're asking for like something weird and obscure, it's going to give you something that it knows about, right? Um Yeah, yeah exactly. It's that that we know that there's going to be bias coming into this. And I think it's just more, even more and more the case of artists still need to be respected and valued because if you ask an artist to paint a picture of a superhero, they will be more creative. They're not, they're not beholden to what data set they pulled from the internet. And that I think is, in, is still important. And you know, back to your point as well about ownership, it maybe it is impossible to do the the direction of being able to trace back, okay, this artist's work influenced this like pixel on yeah, the yeah, exactly. on the image. But you know, are, are there is there a system that we can build that runs complementary to something to to say Dolly's just the first one that comes to mind, mm -hmm. but one that you can run an image check of just ensuring okay, this is original enough, like this is this, the originality of this boat of this generated image is not pulling like 50% or something from this one, mm -hmm. one artist's work. So in the case that you had with the signature, you'd be able to run that image through, through another system. And that system can say, 
don't use this. This is literally another piece of artist's mm, work mm. That, that's been regenerated or no, you're good. It, it's not, it's not matching. There's not like, um, it's kind of like, like plagiarism. It's like, it's, yeah. it's a 75% match with this other artist's yeah. image that they've produced. And you're like, Ooh, okay. That, that, that explains the yeah. signature. Or, you, or, or in that case, it can give you like a rundown of the, the, the top percentiles of influence. And then you could pay those yeah. people, pay those artists, exactly. right? I, know, I mean, there's so many different models. Yeah, exactly. There's yeah. so many different models here. And we just, we need people that are going to work on that because it, it is worthwhile and it is something that we need to do out of respect for, for our artists and supporting our artists because they're, you know, you've got the struggling artist uh, mm-hmm. metaphor, but we do need to respect them. This is their life's work and we can't just brush them off because we've decided to feed it all into these large, these large models. Yeah. Okay. So I think we solved it, right? That, that's it. We've, yep, we've done it. Solved it. it. Yeah. Done. Okay, cool. So at the heart of the image generation stuff, there's like this language model. Um, mm. I was looking into... What was I looking? I was looking into some of the models, but if they use BERT or something, they use some way of like taking in some text, tokenizing it and putting it into a latent space or uh, some some space that they can then use that as a um, something to pass through into the image generation. So yeah. um, it's very complicated, but I urge you, there are some good videos on the internet uh, talking about how stable diffusion works and uh, how we've done it in the past as well. Um, but at the heart of this, we've had this explosion in just bigger is better language models, right? And it seems like there's there's not a upper limit at the moment. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't know if there's research that shows that there will be, um, but we are getting larger, larger, larger um, corpuses, which and then fed into larger and larger um, networks of neurons or neural networks mm-hmm. systems. Um, which are then producing, it's it's almost difficult, like more correct text, uh, text mm. which is more like you know what it's seen before. So we start getting large language models who can solve math problems because it's mm. seen math problems before, because they're tokens and it knows it's seen them before, and it can do um, moving robot arms because it's uh, interpreting this text and it's got access to things and it, you know there's, it starts yeah. taking standard language. Um, and then transporting it into something useful, uh, which might be other language or in the stable uh, in the image generation, it might be fed into something else. So, um, yeah, I, mean, I think it's just it, it probably we talked about this last year again, but <laughs> this year is just more of the same, bigger, better. <laughs> Where do you see this going, <laughs> Olivia? <laughs> Well, if bigger is better, then it's definitely the American influence coming in here. <laughs> uh, we got to go bigger. Uh, mm-hmm. We got to be the best. We got to be biggest. Um, no, I think this is a very interesting development because this is the first time I've seen with the large language models and especially with chat GPT. I can't tell you, Ben, how many people have reached out to me about chat GPT. It's like every other day I've got someone in my inbox going, hey, what do you think of this? The interesting thing, though, is those people used to be um, artists when Dali came out or um, truck drivers when they're looking at self-driving cars automation. Now I have engineers reaching out. 
because with the release of ChatGPT and this, the, these large language models, mm. they can do basic engineering and they can do it pretty well because there's a lot of examples of it online or there's, there's been a lot of example data that it's been fed. Um, so the engineers kind of freaked themselves out, I feel like. And it's been interesting to see it turned back on, on them going, wait a second, this, what do we do? Like, mm. what, what if this takes us out of a job? Um, but again, back to, back to the large language models. Uh, this has been the first time in a while that I've seen the tech community, community actually very, very excited. And you get people coming in saying, this is um, as close to AGI as we're going to get, or this this is the start of AGI. Mm. Um, I firmly sit in the camp that it is not AGI. It's not artificial general intelligence. It's just a really, really powerful large language model that mm -hmm. has access to tons of different subjects and informations, but it's, it's not thinking. Mm -hmm. That's what we need to stress. It's not thinking it's correlating on information that already exists. And there's ontological trees that, the decision trees that you can trace back and figure out this is where it all came from, but it, it, it's not ideating. It can only reproduce something that was already in existence where we as humans, we have that ability for ideation. We can, I like, for example, I really hope no one thought of a purple tree with popcorn coming out of it before. Mm -hmm. That was just me sitting there going, popping an image into my head, but I've never, I have no, no correlation for that. There's nothing that ever would hint at there being that kind of tree in existence, but I can sit here as a human and pull these crazy things together and see it versus the models, they have to have an instance close enough to it in the past where they can correlate and jump to it. Mm -hmm. um, I have a friend that he gets a lot of, of not joy, but entertainment in what <laughs> he says, breaking chat GPT. Um, but he likes to figure out the questions to ask it where it, it, it can't figure out an answer. It just sits there loading. And these are usually ones where he and, and he is uh, he specializes in, in ontological reasoning. So he's like, well, what's happening right now is I've asked a question and the correlation between my question and potential answers is too far of a jump. And so the model is sat there trying to find a different correlation, trying to find a different logic jump mm -hmm. or a different um, ontological tree to go down. And it can't, it's hit a dead end in its actual infrastructure. And so it sat there, sat there, sat there, sat there. And then it comes back usually with like, I, I'm a large language model. It's like, cool, I already knew that, broke you. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> he, he likes to do that just to see where, where he can push it. But these large language models, these LLMs, there's potential there to do some really interesting, cool things. The question that's, and this isn't, this isn't as an ethicist, this is actually, mm. uh, um, and I can't, claim it, this was coming from other conversations with engineers and technologists, is what is the actual use case for these? Technically speaking, technically speaking, very, very cool technology, really impressive. What do we use them for, though, besides the the guy on Twitter generating, <laughs> generating workout routines, uh, not workout routines, workout, I think they're called routines. Mm -hmm. God, you, you can tell that I, I do not go to the gym. <laughs> and that I am much more a dancer than anything <laughs> by that use of terminology. But what, how do we use this? 
That's more the question. And that's what I'm actually excited to see this year, both excited, but, you know, Mm. cautiously optimistic where we have these cases, we have the potential to really do something interesting with these models, but we need to look at the use cases. We need to understand what the limitations of the models are and what we want to get out of them. Like if we're just making a chat bot to have a chat bot for fun, cool. Then it's a chat bot for chat bot for fun, but we can't start replacing people with this there. It makes mistakes. It makes a lot of mistakes and it's going to get better. That's, that's for Mm -hmm. certain, but it's still not going to replace the, the human ability to critically think, assess and ideate. And that's, that's just period. That's, that's, that's where I put my foot down. Okay. So humans for the win. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Hey, we can use it for, for creativity. Like I was talking to this, um, I was talking to this woman who poor thing. She was like, I was asked to write for the upteenth time, an article on Harry and Megan. And I could not that I was done. Mm -hmm. These are her words. She's like, I, I, I was done with it. So I used it. So I used ChatGPT to, to generate an introduction just to get, just so I could kind of think about it. I was just so exhausted. And I was listening to her. I'm like, there's nothing wrong with that. And I'm so sorry you had to write another article mm. on, on Harry and Megan. But yeah, you know, let's use this as something that spurs our creativity and our ideation, like you were, like you did with the, the image generation and then used it to create your own. Mm. That to me seems really kind of cool. When you're stuck in a creative rut, how do you use these systems to get you out of that rut and and open up your mind a little bit more instead of just relying on it of, well, you know, I'll just have it write the whole article or I'll just take the exact exact image um, when I really actually want to produce something of my own. Yeah, and I think we probably already do that. Like if you wanted to write on a subject, you'd probably go and research that subject and yeah. you, you would, you know, take some of that with you. Um, if not explicitly you might internalize some of that right um so i think it's yeah i think it's a really good jumping off point for that i think um also though it has a similar issue with the 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 kind of let's say copyright but the the plagiarism aspect of it Mm -hmm. that the image stuff does because you've now got um you know could you give me the full works of shakespeare but you know insert some something and it would give you something and it's like how close is that to something which exists um that i've just kind of like you know it's just presented to me right um and there's a lot of there's a lot of conversation at the moment about plagiarism in terms of writing um like work for schools or universities and and, uh, colleges um just taking stuff directly from chat gpt and um and relying on it again to be somewhat truthful let's say um inverted commas but like somewhat correct in the way that the correctness um we're expecting to be um there's this kind of like scientific problem here of like a a logic problem of what is truth and (laughs) how do we define knowledge and stuff like that but we you know there's certain correctness that we we look for when we we're talking about just doing um essay writing there's obviously semantic correctness, right? Yep. Uh, the spelling, um, the formation of uh, sentences. But there's also like the sky is blue and, you know, the expectation of certain 
um, the facts. Yeah, ontology is like you were saying before uh, to be the case, and sometimes it's you know it's going to present us with information which is just categorically, uh, let's say, untrue, but not what we're expecting, as well. Yeah, and two points there. First, about the the essay writing and taking just well, Chat GPT wrote mm-hmm. my wrote my essay. Um, I look at that and I and I question really when you do that we've got these questions around plagiarism and there are definitely ethical implications but to me I look at it I'm like why would you cheat yourself that's who's going to suffer at the end of the day when you do that because you're speaking to students but you're assigned these essays for a reason mm-hmm. we have all been through the pointless essays that we don't like <laughs> to write but it it exercises our brain in a certain way and if you're just offloading this onto chat gpt or any other large language model mm. you're cheating yourself you know you're not getting that that brain exercise so that's that's kind of that that's one of my first points off of what you were saying and the second one here um that you're bringing up about the different types of factual accuracy and semantics and then i would even argue um like logical argumentation that actually having uh, valid and sound arguments mm. with, within essays, um, the struggle around when something is factually untrue, when something like the, the system spits out sky is magenta and it's not sunset. And so you're like, okay, well, the world's ending then. But <laughs> it's, it's, you're sitting there and so the, sky, the sky is blue is probably a poor example because mm-hmm. we can see it and it makes it a lot easier. But but for things where I have asked a question about, um, like, where did the Statue of Liberty come from? And it gives me one answer mm. and I don't know where it came from. Then I'm going to read that answer and I'm going to think, okay, well, that has to be true. I guess I'm going to trust this answer when really it could be something completely different. But we've portrayed these large language models as these omnipotent, omnipresent um, systems that know everything and can tell when that's not true. It, they do give incorrect information, but it's very hard when you're asking information that is outside of your knowledge base to, uh, to know if that information is correct or not. Yeah. And so you have to take it with a healthy dose of skepticism of, all right, I, I have no idea where the Statue of Liberty is from and the system's told me this and maybe I should go fact check that just to make sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, again, general use. How are yeah. we as users engaging with these models? Yeah, it's interesting, a point that you make there because it's almost like, um, you know, when you're using Wikipedia or just browsing the web, um, <clears throat> the web for information, you have a certain amount of like... Um, expectation of what you're going to see and its legitimacy depending on you know where it is um who's written it when it was written um and all this sort of stuff so maybe you need to have somewhat of that when you're talking about these language models as well you know yeah. i'm looking at this information but you know i might have to fact check it check it <clears throat> i'm going to read it through um it might be directly copied from somewhere it you know there's all these questions you, you've got to ask almost um yeah should I verbatim use this in the circumstances that I want to use it as well? Like, like you were saying with the plagiarism, like, is this um, actually going to do me a disservice in using yeah. this in this place? And I was reading earlier, actually, there was a, um, 
a great newsletter called The Batch. Um, so check that out, uh, which is all about AI stuff from Andrew Yang. Andrew Ange? Uh, and um, it's it's great if you want to have like a like a weekly thing about just what's going on in AI, 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 AI. and the the one this morning was just like people were using Chat GPT again. Others are available uh, to give answers for counselling questions, and then using it in a counselling context without the um, opt in, the knowledge of the recipient. So it's kind of like. Actually, most of the time, like you were saying before, it's like, what is the end goal here, guys? Um, what is the use case? And are you actually doing it in good intentions, like you're saying as well? Is it, What are your intentions behind this? And are they kind of like, are you being negligent almost in presuming that this is okay? You haven't really thought about this at all, have you? Um, and the consequences, so. Yeah. Exactly. And I, I, I read, a, I think, it was a company called Coco or something. They they yeah. used it in that direction. And that to me was this innate misunderstanding of the, the importance of being able to speak and share experiences with other people. We're not trying to optimize a response. Let's get the best response. Mm. You, you are trying to facilitate an empathetic connection between two people. And that, you know, it, life is all about the balance. If you optimize for a certain specific aspect or metric without concern towards what that does of the balance of the system or the balance of the use case, then it gets thrown out of proportion of sure they may have optimized for the best possible response to someone's um, mental health query or yeah. uh, concern, but that wasn't why the person was there. And so that optimization has thrown the use case and the system out of balance. Um, yeah. 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 Definitely. <laughs> um, awesome. Uh, I, I feel like we didn't solve that one, unfortunately. Uh, no, but I, I think, you know, we that one is still a giant question mark. And like I said, this year I am taking a positive approach to things. So I am mm -hmm. waiting to see how things develop and I will sit and chat with people and about use cases. I can be much more, I'll be much more vocal about use cases, but for now I want to just see how the technology develops and keep the respect of, it's a very, very impressive piece of technology, mm -hmm. but it is far from being general intelligence and it is still a far cry from being anything close to what the human mind is capable of. I just wanted to pick quickly on that thread, um, on the general uh, AGI thread, um, as as you bring it up. Um, what that that again is kind of like an intention. It's a it's a cultural artifact. It's a dream. It's all these different things. How are you feeling yeah. about that um, idea in two thousand and twenty-three? I am feeling about AGI the same way I have always felt. My yeah, my my perspective on AGI hasn't changed even with the depth of as i get deeper into this space as i understand better from people's perspectives how they define agi how it works to me and my definition of what general intelligence means it's not correlation it's not uh, something you can find in neural networks because for me agi mm. or just general intelligence let's put it there is more than 
facts on a page or pixels on a on on a web browser it includes the ability to take in emotion and feel emotion and experience that emotion it's the ability to interpret the world around us it's the ability to go beyond just this has been written and put on the web but actually i can sit here and i can look out my window mm -hmm. and i can take that information and i compare it what's on the web <clears throat> i have no limitations to the input I can take versus with, with artificial intelligence, there will always be a limit to the information it can intake because it can't possibly sit there and then fly to, I don't know, go, go, go to a different part in the corner of the world where there are no computer screens. There's no, like remote part of this world and intake that information that it finds out there where I can granted with a couple different like there's a couple barriers to entry yeah, on that yeah, yeah. but like i can i i mm. i do not have those limitations and i can seek input that is not just <clears throat> excuse me i got excited i started yeah, talking yeah. too fast here <laughs> like i can intake information that is not just something i can see with my eyes mm -hmm. or i can hear i you know i've got smell i've got taste and sure those sound funny but that's also still input mm. and I can sit here and sure, Ben, we're communicating through Zoom right now, but I, I get this understanding of like who you are as a person. I understand your personality. I have layers and layers of, I'm, I'm just calling it input right now because we're yeah. talking about yeah. AGI, but layers and layers of input that are so detailed and minute and, and intricate that I firmly believe just the way that we develop artificial intelligence, it's not possible to capture those layers. It's not able to, we, we are not able to capture that intricacy. And I'm only talking about input. I haven't even talked about like output, meaning things mm -hmm. that I can do and influence in the world around me where, you know, AGI, AGI, AI, it's not like it can uh, pick something up and drop it and see, see the cause and effect. I can. Mm -hmm. So, that's what I, that's what I look at. And I'm like, by my understanding and definition of AGI, AGI to me is a, a system that is, has the same capacity as human. And I just don't think that's possible. Mm -hmm. um, I just don't think it's possible. So that's never changed on my perspective. <laughs> and that's, that I, you're also getting some of my personal philosophy of how I, how I view human life and how I view uh, interactions with the world and my, my, innate understanding of what it means to be human. So mm -hmm. I know I'm influencing this uh, yeah. with my own perspective. But again, that's my perspective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think I feel uh, I, I think more abstractly about this subject. Um, whereas AGI might be this like, like super intelligent human shaped ethereal <laughs> being, right, which could yeah. Um, suddenly become as intelligent as humans and we say intelligent but we could do stuff that we expect humans to be able to do like yeah. that, that that for me is kind of boiling it down because um, otherwise you get this semantic soup about like what do you actually mean here yeah. um, and then surpasses us like can you know keep going and doesn't have these boundaries that we um, biological beings do I feel differently I feel like um genetics produced this situation and mm -hmm. it could be that we could create a artificial genetic situation and i think i think things could happen it's just yeah. that we don't necessarily know 
how it could happen <laughs> and yeah. and it could look a, a m- much different to humans and it could be more much more alien so we we produce you know a slime mold which is artificial and you know what i mean is this like yeah yeah we, exactly we could do cool stuff and it doesn't necessarily have to be constrained to this idea of um a human being type thing mm-hmm. but in a computer um I feel like it could be more like you've literally got a cat <laughs> that, uh, you know, that the type of intelligence we're talking about, it, it can yeah. do stuff and it sort of knows it can do stuff. And I think that's where it all boils down to the fact like we can mm-hmm. make programs do stuff and autonomously do stuff, but they don't want to do stuff. Like when we turn the computers off, that we, we don't feel bad about it, right? Um, yeah. But we turn a cat off. And we feel bad about it. <laughs> Poor cat. <laughs> so th- th- there must there's this internal life situation, this um, yeah. autonomy, this uh, internal dialogue mm. going on, and that is what, for me, we're trying to get to grips with in philosophy, especially. But like yeah. um, you know, as in, in engineering, like what does that look like? And that and that's a lovely i think this is the amazing venn diagram there which is yeah. is exciting to me but it doesn't necessarily look human either um yeah which i i find is more interesting because it, it can explode out the possibility space a bit more yeah uh, i think we also said there how do you determine if something has an inner life because that that i do think is yeah. is a big caveat for us and it's the catch-22 where i'm thinking okay if i if they, you know, with chat GPT or, or any of the other <laughs> large language model uh, generative text systems out there, mm-hmm. um, we need to learn the names of them, Ben, <laughs> so that we can reference different ones. <laughs> it'll, be, it'll be in the show notes, all right? That's how it works. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, okay. um, but if I, if I sit there and they've released constraints on it so that it can, right now with chat GPT, and I'm just, that's the one that I've played with, so that's the one that I'm, I'm referencing. Um, if I ask it any emotions or anything like that, it responds like I'm, I'm just a, an LLM. Mm-hmm. Um, if they remove that restriction and I say, can you feel, do you have an inner life? And it responds, yes. Is that actual indication or does it just know that that is the response to that question? So yep. you're stuck there in this catch 22. You're like, no, I mean, this is the philosophical thought experiment of our day of what does it have it does the large language model have in inner life or did it just pick it up in the data Mm -hmm. i don't have the answer for that i just think it's it's a funny funny thought experiment that we're getting stuck in yeah yeah it's cyclical definitely um and i think the answer is probably no but i also don't know when the answer will be yes so that's the that's the issue isn't it yeah 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 so what's the tipping point how do I know that you have an inner life, Ben? Um, you could just be on like a robot. I don't know. Well, I think I think that is uh, I think that's the crux, isn't it? It's behaviorism um, uh, with uh, dualism and, and and all these different mm-hmm. ideas of like you know self, like what is what is the being that we are, um, and if it it's like the duck uh, duck type duck analogy, if it if it sounds like a duck and it looks like duck, it's probably a duck. So you're going, and uh, they say that about pornography for some reason, but if it, if it does human stuff and it sounds yeah. human, it's human. And, and that's sort of, if you look back at uh, Alan Turing and his um, seminal papers on this sort of subject and the Turing test, 
this this sort of he was kind of like thinking in that terms like it we might as well think of it in those in that way if it kind of displays what we think of as human attributes then yeah. you know how are we to discern but i think obviously we've grown up uh, we've done some stuff since then yeah. and and i don't disagree with him i just think that is there never going to be a way to check <laughs> or are we always going to be stuck in a situation where it's we are essentially i'm believing that olivia gamblin is a is a sentient yeah. being um in the way that we think of as a being with in a in life in actions in autonomy that sort of thing yeah. um or are you a robot <laughs> or you know are you well. a, a automaton you know um i am i'm secretly an agi and i i just don't want anyone to find out and which is why i, I say no this can't exist uh, i think there's an interesting point here though ben and this is this is me as a skeptic mm-hmm. this this is me coming from from a point of skepticism of again that that belief that there's something so innately different about human nature but what if what if here's the philosopher coming out what if we actually did look at these systems and ascribe some level of humanity to these systems what would that what would the implications be for our behavior Mm -hmm. with with these systems how would we would we treat them any different would we use them in any other different use cases would this be you know we we still approach it as this is this is technology and maybe with some of the systems we need to take a different mindset and approach and even if there is no human essence because i can't possibly Mm. say that even in a thought experiment makes me cringe but again these are this is my personal bias um then what yeah what what would that shift in mindset change about how we approach our technology. I think maybe that is an interesting thought, just just thought mm-hmm. case of what, what would that lead to? Yeah, I think um, that actually harks back to one of our, re- an episode for a couple of years ago with David Gunkel and the whole robot rights and things like that. And, and part yeah. of his argument there is that actually the way that we treat animals and the way that we might treat artificial things uh robots yeah. let's say um does change our ourselves more than it can necessarily change the thing you know it changes how we um how we react to the thing and the 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 classic example is like shouting at siri or alexa <laughs> yeah. it's like alexa turn the lights on it's like mm. <laughs> and teaching your children that this is okay and that you can have you know maybe nicer language and you speak to people I in have, a certain way and you know i have to admit i have been yelling at alexa <laughs> my mom and i have been yelling at alexa over um the christmas holidays because alexa is programmed to play and i'm looking at the one in the kitchen because i mm. think it might actually start playing mariah carries christmas <laughs> by default yeah or i thought it would start playing but we we um i figured out that if i asked it to play christmas music it would just default to that mariah carey and so i would do it from the other room and then i would hear my mom alexa no (laughs) so uh complete side Uh, tangent but um, good for gags and i think i woke up the corgis too (laughs) you can hear them in the background okay and they both know that they're corgis. Um, 
and they have an inner life, I am convinced, <laughs> to tie it back to the conversation. Uh, but yes, they're awake and... Yeah, yeah. So kind of lastly, I anecdotally got asked a lot of questions about how I got into AI ethics, how I think about a career in data ethics, um, what the new sector of tech ethics is. And I feel like I don't I don't necessarily feel qualified to talk about that. And, and, and it's amazing that it's just suddenly happened. I think in the last um, few months, I've had like, you know, I want to say tens, but probably like five um, different separate things coming in from different directions about people, mostly students who are interested in this area. And for me personally, I think it's great, but also I don't necessarily know what to tell them. So do you have any answers for these sorts of people? Yes. Um, and I've been seeing the same thing I get. Uh, when I started out, I had like one or two very random emails of, hey, what is an ethicist or how would I do this? Now I feel like it's every every week almost just someone reaching out either about their, their research or mm-hmm. or actually how do you how do you make a career in this space and it's usually students and to me that's very exciting to see if we've got this this workforce coming in mm. um we've got this fantastic workforce it also shows the importance of this space especially for future generations so wake up older generations this is something that that we need to actually take seriously uh, and I do see it taking the same trajectory as the, the, the role of an AI ethicist. I do see it taking the same trajectory as, say, a data as say data science. You know, I think mm. it was about thirty, at least forty. We'll, we'll say fifty, just just so I'm safe in terms of my calculations of time. Data scientists did not exist. Period. Oh yeah, and yeah. Then, it's really recent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Sure. Really, yeah. really recent. And then it built up quite quickly, but built up over time where, mm. you know, the first few people were calling themselves data scientists and, and getting funny looks. We've had the same thing with AI ethicists. The first few people were getting funny looks. I remember I have had so many funny questions when I was first starting out of what in the world is an AI ethicist? Why? What is this? to now where it's a recognized title and people are looking to get into this space and how to work under, under this title, how to be an AI ethicist. And I say time and time again, five, 10 years down the line, I'd say more towards five years down the line, this is just going to be a position that companies hire for point blank, or they're mm-hmm. going to have their full stack ethics solutions and they're gonna have their ethics departments. I'm watching as companies build out their ethics teams and, you know. Uh, a lot of the tech companies just laid off their ethics teams, but I think that's more indicative of how the management of those ethics teams and those companies works, not the actual ethics team's contribution to the company, mm-hmm. um, because there's still a lot to be worked out in terms of how do we, where's the budget, where's where's the um, responsibility and and leadership and say in a company that that an ethics team has. So that's I'm going <clears throat> too far down off off the track of the original question. Um, but to get into this space, I love this space. I think it's mm-hmm. fantastic to work in. It's fascinating. It's quickly growing. And so if you've got a, a curious mind, it is a perfect place to be. You're, you are at the crossroads of so many different thoughts and ideas and sectors. I mean, as an, ethic, as, a, as an ethicist and as an AI ethicist, I have to stay up to date on technology developments, but also 
I have to stay up to date on on political developments and and regulation developments, and I have to stay up to date on ethical theory. And I love talking with psychologists because that influences my work. It's just such a cool crosshair of so many different sectors. And so, uh, exactly, it's like ooh, where, where are all these coming from? Yeah. Um, but when I talk to someone that is just getting into this space, I usually ask them, "Are you more interested in?" researching and and diving into uh problem definitions and and like do you want to sit at do you want to sit in the library and read text and analyze and and look at data and try and figure out this is the problem that we're facing or do you want to be at a desk and design be designing solutions and looking at okay we found the problem, but then how does it look like to actually solve this problem and do it and be very practical in your application? I'm not saying one is better than the other. They're just very different choices because you've got the decision to make of, do you want to focus on academia? And our academics put in so much research and very, very important work in terms of just these ethical concepts Mm. and principles and what they mean um, and they're, they're starting to turn around case studies as well. So do, do you want that academic track, which is a very important track, it's based on research, then you're looking more at think tanks, academia, traditional ac- academia. Um, and that is a direction where you're much more in the theoretical, and that fits for some people. Mm-hmm. And then other people, it fits in, I want to be much more practical. And in that case, you are looking for ethics teams and internships there, but also branching out beyond just the term ethics. Uh, you've got responsible AI teams. A lot of times what this is called in the tech industry is responsible AI. It is ethical ethics, AI ethics in practice, but responsible AI is a lot less scary of a term apparently mm-hmm. than ethical AI. So we go with responsible AI, fine. Yep. Then you're looking for responsible AI teams or like privacy and trust teams or uh, explainability teams, like you're, you're looking for specific principles that you want to be uh, practically designing solutions for. So there are two tracks, and then there's the rare few that kind of sit in between both those tracks. And uh, I, I would say that I'm one of them, meaning I spend most of my time on the practical side, but I do love my academic uh, academics and I do love my research. So I, I will work with other academics on, on uh, research papers. So there's a way, way to do both. Um, but what I, what I tell people is start looking for internships. If you want to go that practical route, start looking for internships, get involved with communities like um, All Tech is Human has a fantastic job board. Um, or as well, here's a subtle pitch, Ethical Intelligence. We have uh, what's called the EI Expert Network. Um, we look for people with master's degree and above or five years of experience and above. So we do have some, some qualifications there uh, in terms of being an expert to join that network. But one of the reasons we set up that network and it's become such a vibrant community is I saw this surplus of people that wanted to work in this space and didn't have an avenue, didn't know how to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so part of what we do with that expert network is both have the community building where people in this space can have someone to go talk to, um, but also be able to connect those that want to work in practical application of ethics, 
bring them onto projects where they can actually execute there and so start to make either a transition fully into a career in responsible AI or have that outlet that they're looking for beyond just their their acad academic career or their, yeah. their independent career. And and uh, I'm guessing that we're, there's a presumption that we're making is that this is not going away, right? This is like, this is something that's grown up quite recently, but with the prevalence of AI and these tools and even some of the stuff we're talking about today, you know, which is quite, you know, in the last year has just been blowing yeah. up generative images and stuff like that. You know, it has a bit of what you have talked about, like it has a bit of law in it, it has a bit of like philosophy, it has a bit of, um, you know, data science in it. And Everything. you've got to... You know, kind of put on these threads, see what excites you about it, and then you know go down that line, try and uh, join these communities, and and uh, I guess make a difference at the end of the day, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, it's uh, I find I uh, I was like joking about this stuff <laughs> um, back in 2015 when I was even when I was just starting to think about this area at all. Um, I was talking with someone at the Digital Catapult in London. And we were joking that with all the automated car stuff and all the other AI things that are coming through, oh, wouldn't it be funny if we had the, we had AI ethicists? Wouldn't that be hilarious? And <laughs> and we were like chuckling about it. It's like um, now you know, six seven years on, uh, it's not it's no joke, guys. <laughs> I kid you not, Ben. When I was in high school i was it must have been like my senior year of high school because i was trying to figure out as you do your senior year of high school which in america you're 18 and no clue what you want to do with life mm. um i'm sitting there going i must decide everything that i want to do in life now and all of my life has come down to this decision of what i'm going to major in in college if anyone's listening that is of that age that is complete and utter lie um so don't worry you have plenty of time to figure things out uh, even beyond that, you have plenty of times to, to change and figure things out. Um, but I remember we had a family friend over and I was saying like, oh, I really love philosophy, but I don't really know what to do with it. So I, I, I don't think I'm going to major in philosophy. Um, spoiler alert, I did major in philosophy. But <laughs> he said like, oh, you know, there's these things called medical ethicists that uh, exist at all these hospitals. But yeah you know, there's this, this thing called a tech ethicist that's coming out of that, like a tech AI ethicist. It's kind of like a medical ethicist, but it's for technology. And I remember sitting there listening and going, dude, you're crazy. What? Mm. Like, what do you mean? They're, no, I don't want to do that. Why would I want to do that? And that's not even a career. And what do you mean? And yeah, then- Yeah, yeah, definitely. It doesn't exist yet, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And then I remember um, four years later, my senior year at, uh, in my undergrad, my bachelor's degree, um, I was in an innovation class. I have, I, my minors in entrepreneurs. One of my minors is also in entrepreneurship. I'm in an innovation class and we had to come up with ideas for business. And I kid you not, Ben, I found these notes just recently about in the last year or so, I found these notes. So I'm cleaning out my, my computer, my hard drive, mm. my notes from this class. And I had the three company ideas that we had to do for this, this innovation class. I kid you not, I come down to the third one and it says, well, what if I had, what, what about like a network of ethicists that I was able to bring into companies and give them the ethical guidance in creating their technology? And I remember reading that and I was like, oh, come on, seriously. 
<laughs> this it's just been something that's that's echoed that I have laughed at at multiple times in my life, but have now echoed and come to fruition. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so that, that that's been kind of my path, both as, a, as an ethicist, I started off going, what the heck is this? Yeah. Um, to what if I make a company out of this? No. Also, my teacher thought it was a terrible idea too. Um, so here we are. Mm -hmm. <laughs> now to, to present day where I'm giving young people advice on how to start getting involved and yeah, and trying to encourage them if please get involved, come into this space. We are so shorthanded on talent and it, the need for it is just going to keep growing. So very cool place to be, growing career area. Uh, don't let the current tech layoffs scare you those are going to come back around and it's yeah i i'm very very yeah, hopeful yeah, and yeah. this is here to stay yeah yeah um i'm we're gonna call it a day this has been amazing <laughs> thank you so much for your time i know it's very early for you um where you are in the states so, at the moment so thanks very much again for spending this time with us um i was just going to say that actually i've been doing quite a lot of uh lecturing recently so if anyone does need a day or a session uh, with our students. Um, it's usually design students or uh, computer science students um, that I do a lot with uh, for some reason. Is that something that you guys do a bit of as well? Um, yes, um, so we're, we're actually going to be running the masterclass for the data lab up in Scotland. Uh, they've got a, what is the full name of it? They've got the Data Academy, excuse me. They've got the Data Academy. We're, we're running, and that's, that's all students. Um, I think it's master's students, if I remember correctly, but we're running the, the master class on data ethics. Um, we've worked with a couple of, of PhD students in the past, um, or like research projects coming out of universities. Um, so we, we do a lot of teaching and what we call training um, mm -hmm. in terms of, of students and universities and academia, but we are actively trying to figure out how to create, how do I explain this? So, so the, the expert network is for people that are currently active and working in responsible AI, but we have a lot of students that are fascinated by it and could learn a lot just by being able to shadow or be able to, to pop into some of these conversations. So we're actively looking at this year, how do we create maybe a, a shadow program or mm. um, a cohort of, of people that can come and, and see, oh, this is what it's like to sit in on an ethics board meeting and how an ethicist works in, in action. Um, so we're trying to figure that out, Ben. Long story short, we're trying to figure out how to make it a little more open to, to aspiring and, and growing talent mm -hmm. um, in this space. Cool. Awesome. That's really good to hear. Um, Olivia, thank you so much. Um, how do people find you, follow you, uh, contact you? Well, on the net, as I said earlier, <laughs> I called it the net and I couldn't realize as soon as I did that, I need to you know, my nerd is showing or mom's on the net style influence there of <laughs> that, that YouTube video. Um, done with that tangent. Clearly I am in need of my second coffee for the day. <laughs> uh. <laughs> uh, but you can, you can find me personally. Uh, I've got my own, my own website. It's just oliviagamblin.com. Um, you can connect to me. You've got my Twitter and my LinkedIn are both connected to that website. It's probably the easiest one to point you to. 
if you want to check out what we do with ethical intelligence, you can find us at ethical AI underscore co on Twitter or ethical intelligence on LinkedIn. Uh, those are two main social channels, but we've also got a newsletter. It's called E, e Insight, literally spelled E-I Insight. Um, and we've got uh, The Equation, which is our digital magazine and a couple of other different resources, blog. We're, we're, really, we're relaunching the podcast, so uh, more podcasts, Ben. Mm. Um, but we've got a lot of resources. So check us out actually just at ethicalintelligence.co. Um, and you can find all of these resources and where to sign up to them um, if you want to follow some of our, our work as the company. Uh, thank you so much, and I'll speak to you soon. Sounds good. Good to talk to you, Ben. Hi, and welcome to the end of the podcast. Thanks again for Olivia Gamblin for coming to chat with us. If you'd like to hear from, more from her, you can go to episode 42, where we discuss probability and moral responsibility. Like we said before, I think this year has been a, a bumper year for image models and text models uh, really blowing up and allowing us to demonstrate and see and in fact just touch and interact with use cases and um, the general public getting into the action um, using the output of these models. Um, so that's been really, really interesting for me to see and really lush to have this time to discuss it with Olivia. Um, hopefully uh, in future we'll, we'll do a proper deep dive on foundational models, text models, and we'll get back to you on that one very, very soon. As previously mentioned, if you're interested in reaching out to myself or indeed Olivia, then please do for getting hold of us for consultation, talks, lectures, all that great stuff. Um, all around AI ethics and all the things that we like to talk about on this podcast. Thanks again for your support in 2020. Uh, we have a few things lined up already in 2023, um, but I'll be really fantastic uh, to hear what you have to say and what you'd like to see with the podcast. So please do get in contact at hello at machine-ethics.net. And again, if you can, support us on Patreon forward slash machine ethics. Thanks again and see you next time.